Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, we talk about two towns that live side by side, and both have a secret to tell. We're talking about Hayward, California, and San Leandro, California. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Welcome back to episode 8 of season 1 of Small Town Secrets. And I know what you're thinking. Didn't he last week say that he was going to start releasing these on Saturday mornings, blah, 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 blah. Yes. Yes, I did. And that's still the case. But we had a little mishap at my new job and it shut us down for a couple of days. So I decided to go ahead and take this extra time I've gotten, get the episode done and get it out on the normal release schedule. So episode 9 will be the first episode to release on a Saturday morning. But here we are, and we're ready to go with a couple of new stories, a couple of new towns to talk about, and I'm kind of excited about this episode. I've been holding it 
on the back burner for a long time. It's gotten switched around a couple of times. It was originally going to be like episode six, and I changed it, and da-da-da-da-da. But here it is. It is episode eight. Uh, tonight's theme is uh, these towns are side-by-side. Side. I never said the themes were going to be strong and interesting and clever. I wanted to do these two for a couple of reasons. One, yes, they are side-by-side. Side. They're the type of towns where you don't even realize that you've left one and entered another You'll just be driving down Hesperian Boulevard and everything will be like, hey, we're dry cleaners. Hey, we're donut shop, vape shop. And then all of a sudden everything says San Leandro on the side. And you're like, oh, wait, where am I? Um, and the other big reason was I used to live in Hayward, California. Uh, not for very long, but my legal address was in California. My mail went there. So I lived there. Damn it. And I always wanted to talk about Something in Hayward, and Hayward does have a nice little nugget to uh, get into called the Hayward Plunge, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, the other town, San Leandro, actually has a true crime story that I have known about for a long time. I saw it way back in the day on like A&E or something, and I always thought it was near L.A. I always thought it was SoCal, but now that I have a much more uh, higher grasp of towns around the bay, I, I looked it back up and I was like, oh, wow, that's in San Leandro. That's where I used to go to the In-N-Out. So we're going to be talking about the San Linguista sausage murders. And then we have, like always, our local headlines and a couple of listener stories. No uh, big fancy-smancy interviews this week. Just good old, we sent some stuff in, found one on Reddit, someone emailed one in, and that is what is on the docket for tonight. But before we get to all that, of course, we have a couple promos to play for some other podcasts for you to check out. Once again, we're going to do two, one from my uh, personal bank of promos and the other one from Big Heads Media. First is Coast to Ghost, and the second is from my fellow podcaster over Big Heads Media, TV Tuners. So check these guys out, and we'll be back in a little bit. It was a dark and stormy night. Wait. Why does it have to be dark and stormy? Yeah, why can't it be daytime and clear skies? Oh, for f**k sakes. <laughs> Join us bi-weekly on Coast to Ghost as we take a trip cross-country digging up the ghost of your state. Drinks are included and pants are optional. You can listen to Coast to Ghost on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to get spooked? Oh, hey, I didn't see you there. I'm Swanson, host of the TV Tuners podcast. Every week on TV Tuners, me and my co-host, Kiyore. Swanson, I need water. And Stairmaster. <coughs> review the latest in TV, discuss news, trailers, and even find time to play some fun games. Right now, we're working overtime to cram as much TV knowledge into our brains as possible. Isn't that right, guys? Swanson, we've been here for 24 hours. We need to get out of here. Not until you answer who Norm is. He's Fraser's brother. Wrong. You get the shock. <gasps> Check out TV Tunes, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or any of the podcatchers of your choice. So a couple of good shows to check out, a couple of good shows to add to your list, but let's get into tonight's content. I'm going to start out with the good old town of Hayward, California, and the public indoor pool known as the Hayward Plunge. Hayward is in the heart of the East Bay. It's home to many things, 
such as the famous Buffalo Bills Brew Pub, a large fiberglass Paul Bunyan-like statue called Big Mike, and it's where Tom Hanks graduated college. Also, The Rock was born there. Dwayne Johnson was born in uh, Hayward. But Big Mike isn't the only landmark in Hayward. On Mission Boulevard stands a long cement building that resembles an aircraft carrier, or maybe, if you're prone to it, a subway hub. This is the Hayward Plunge, a large indoor, possibly haunted, public pool. The plunge was constructed in the 1930s as part of President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Part of the New Deal was to plan and construct public works projects all across the country in order to provide jobs and inject lifeblood back into the economy. The Hayward Plunge was one of those projects. It opened its doors on August 26, 1936, and still operates today. The Plunge is actually part of Memorial Park. One of the main attractions of the park is the three-mile-long hiking trail called the Hayward Plunge Trail. Part of the trail follows Ward Creek. For years, ghost stories have floated around the plunge, and the creek due mostly in part to a creepy urban legend that arose sometime in the 60s. The legend goes that in the 60s, a swim team was led down the trail to Ward Creek by their coach. He told them to wait by the creek for him to return, and he disappeared. The coach came back after dark and allegedly murdered the entire team and put their bodies in the creek before escaping into the darkness. Since then, people have claimed to hear ghostly cries and footsteps inside Hayward Plunge. Outside on the trail, more disembodied voices can be heard, as well as cold spots and small rock slides down the hill, as if someone was walking on it, but no one is there. Today, local residents still experience activity on the trail. Shauna Cabana made a YouTube video about the Hayward Plunge. In it, she talks about walking on the trail and hearing voices and seeing small rock slides. Cynthia, a college student, who is also in the video, talks about her experience. She took her friend on a hike one day on the trail. She didn't tell her friend where they were going until they got there, so her friend couldn't weasel out. They started the hike, and everything seemed normal. They did hear some voices, but chalked it up to kids playing in the nearby area. Two minutes into the hike, things started to change. The area around them seemed to give off weird vibes and made them feel uneasy. Cynthia started to feel drained and decided to turn back. The eerie feeling was just too much. YouTuber To The North and friends filmed a video of them hiking the trail at night. In their vid, they catch a disembodied voice saying, Hey, as well as something that appears to be the sound of a whistle. They also report a similar eerie feeling, as well as coldness and the rocks falling. The group also claimed to have heard footsteps following them and watching them, and eyes peering out behind the trees on the trail. Of course, the story of the swim team is an urban legend, and it's just that. If this had actually happened, there would be hard facts out there, there would be names, there would be uh, newspaper articles, there would probably be some, you know, news coverage. It would have been an infamous crime, I mean, they would have written books about it, they would have made documentaries about it, they would have uh, recorded podcasts about it. So I don't think the whole... Uh, swim team murder ever happened, ever took place. It's just too vague. It's not like it happened back in the Dark Ages. It happened in the 60s. We had stuff in the 60s. We knew what happened in the 60s. So I wouldn't put a lot of credence into it. But just because that urban legend is pretty much just that, an urban legend, doesn't mean that there isn't activity at the place. You know, it's just like what we said before, like a few episodes back with 
uh, some of the haunted houses we talked about in, you know, Borley Essex and the, and the Smurl haunting, you know, something, you know, just because I think a lot of these urban legends pop up because there is activity, there is something going on, and our minds need something to bite into, something to give it a purpose, to give it a reason for being there, and hence... Uh, these urban legends like the murderous swim team coach uh, pop up because there's activity there and we have to find a way to explain it away we have to give it some sort of credence when you know we don't know why activity happens there it could be for a completely different reason that we know nothing about and I think you know that's where a lot of this stuff comes from so, is the area haunted by the voices and strange rock slides, or is it just kids playing in the park? And are the rock slides just merely there because the creek runs along the Hayward Fault Line? Maybe. Maybe not. Or perhaps... Perhaps it's just a little bit of both. And, yeah, I did. I lived in Hayward for a summer, for about three months, four months, and I never actually got a chance to visit the place. Um, I knew it was there. I looked it up once. I just never got around to going to checking it out myself but that's something I kind of regret doing I had nothing but time out there and I just didn't go I had I went you know I did other st other stuff but maybe one of these days I'll go back for a visit and stop by the old Hayward plunge and walk the trail and see what's going on but let's switch gears now from a story that probably didn't happen an activity that does seem to be around to a story that totally happened and we're going to talk about San Leandro, California. San Leandro is nestled in the East Bay, in between Oakland to the northwest and Hayward to the southeast. And like I said, I've been there a lot. Uh, that's where my In-N-Out was. There wasn't an In-N-Out in Hayward. So the next nearest one was up the street to San Leandro. So that's, that's about the only time I spent in San Leandro was going to go get a burger. Uh, on June 21st in 2000, the town would be rocked by a bizarre triple homicide. It would become known as the Santos Linguisa Sausage Murders. Stuart Alexander was born on March 22nd, 1961 to Herman Tweedy Alexander and Shirley May Perot. He was born in San Leandro and was a lifelong resident. His family was from Portugal. Tweedy, his father, was an astute and sharp businessman who started the Santos Linguina Sausages Factory. The business was a thriving enterprise for years. It was said by many to produce the finest linguista sausage in the Bay Area, if not in the entire country. However, as time passed, it became apparent to Tweedy that one day he would have to pass his legacy on to one of his sons. Originally, he planned on handing the company over to his eldest son, Stefan. Sadly, Stefan would die in a motorcycle accident in 1977, at the age of 18. After the passing of Stefan, Tweedy had no choice but to put his trust in his younger son, Stuart. Herman had a little faith in his younger son, and was often abusive towards him. He was very hard on Stuart, but he also prepared him the best he could to follow in his footsteps. This abuse, coupled with his parents' divorce in 1971, when Stuart was only 10, gave him a short fuse later in life. And what a short fuse it would be. 
1996, he was charged with beating his 76-year-old neighbor after an argument. He was known for being very anti-authority and didn't like being told what to do. In the late 90s, Stewart would take over running the factory from his father, and for a while, it continued to thrive under his leadership. He started to garner respect around San Leandro, just like his father did before him. Yes, at the beginning, things were going well, but in Stewart's eyes, he had one mighty thorn in his side, the health inspectors. As I said earlier, he didn't like being told what to do, and was often at odds with the inspectors. He would do things like keeping emails and letters from the health department so he could openly mock them in front of his mother and his secretary. Alexander would often call them trespassers. Eve Elder, a former girlfriend of Stuart, once helped him write a few short stories about the inspectors. One of these stories described the health inspectors drowning in vats of secret sauce. He even put a sign up in front of the factory which read, To all of our great customers, the USDA is coming into our plant harassing my employees and me, making it impossible to make our great product. Gee, if all meat plants could be in business for 79 years without one complaint, the meat inspectors would not have jobs. Therefore, we are taking legal action against them. In 1998, he ran for mayor of San Leandro and lost. This political move was most likely to get some sort of leverage over those health inspectors. Among the usual health violations, there were two that kept getting the factory in trouble. Both at the time were new laws, I believe these were new laws at the time, in place by the state of California. One was that the sausage needed to be smoked at 140 degrees. The family recipe called it for it to be smoked at 144 degrees. Stewart claimed that, uh, that doing this at 140 would shrink the final product and he would have to sell it at a cheaper price. However, it would be the smoke room itself that caused the most trouble. The smoke room was made of brick, and under new laws, the room had to be converted to stainless steel. Alexander didn't want to make this conversion. One, it would cost him a bunch of money to do so, and two, it would change the flavor of the famous sausage. These ongoing violations would cause the factory to be shut down not once, but twice. And each time, Stewart would reopen the factory without addressing the health issues. Doing this just caused the business to lose more and more money, and soon he was no longer operating in the black, and the business was failing, and failing fast. But then, on June 21st, 2000, the inspectors showed up again. They were met at the door by Stewart. The health inspectors called the San Leandro police to request backup. Stewart had also called the police to request help dealing with the inspectors. Both calls were logged as routine calls, and no police showed up to the scene at that time. Once the inspectors were finally able to enter the lobby, Stuart Alexander calmly went to his office and retrieved a gun from his desk. He re-entered the lobby and opened fire on the four inspectors. Those four inspectors were U.S. Department of Agriculture Inspector Gene Hillary, age 56, U.S. Department of Agriculture Inspector Thomas Quadros, age 52, California State Department of Food and Agricultural Inspector William Shaline, 57, and California State Inspector Earl Willis. Hillary, Quadros, and Shaline would succumb to the gunfire, but Earl Willis was able to escape and get to a nearby bank. Stuart Alexander stormed out of the building and chased Willis down the street, but after realizing he was not going to be able to kill Willis, he returned to the factory lobby and executed the other three, making sure that they were dead. All of this was caught on tape. 
There was a security camera in the lobby, and he was filmed on a camcorder outside as he tried to gun down Earl Willis. Alexander would later try to plead insanity at his trial, claiming the ongoing abuse and taunting from the health inspectors drove him into a rage. That defense didn't work. On October 19th, 2004, he would be sentenced to death at San Quentin. During the trial, Stewart would gain some 80 pounds. This, in part, led to his demise. Uh, he, he got some pretty bad health problems from his weight gain and just, you know, the way he'd been living his life. Uh, he would die in San Quentin of a pulmonary embolism on December 27th, so just two days after Christmas, 2005. A memorial event was held in June 2010 to commemorate the four workers, including Earl Willis, who had succumbed to cancer in 2008. Uh, if you go look at it now, there is no Linguista Sausage Factory. It is now a nightclub. You can look it up on Google Maps. It's called the Washington Club now. But it's long gone. I mean, the building's still there, obviously. Nightclub. But no more Sausage Factory. Everything after this, everything was gone. The legacy ended with Stuart Alexander in his rage. And that is... San Leandro's small town secret. I'm going to take our musical break here. We're going to come back with uh, the local headlines and the listener stories for episode 108 of Small Town Secrets.
And here we are with local headlines. And I just realized, looking through them, all three of them involve some sort of uh, implement of war. One's got a tank, one's got a helicopter, I think, or a plane. And the other one has an old Russian, or not Russian, an old German bomb in it. So just a weird synchronicity that I didn't even mean to happen. But the first one is from slavorum.org. Uh, this article is written by Boris V. Drunk Polish man invades a small Polish town with a Soviet tank. A nationwide sensation ended with the overnight adventure of the T-55 tank through Pajinko. The intoxicated tanker was stopped and the machine was towed to a guarded parking lot. On Thursday, the duty officer of the Poivet Police Headquarters and Pajinko received a very unusual report from which it appeared that one of the main streets of the city was a rampaging Soviet tank. Immediately, a patrol was sent direct to the area of a street that I cannot pronounce and I'm not going to try to pronounce. You can look at the article and see it for yourself. The officers found a T-55 tank parked on the roadway and a man standing next to it. The police apprehended the 49-year-old tank owner. The man was drunk. As it turns out, he had been authorized to drive the vehicle, although his superiors presumably only wanted him to move it off and on the damaged trailer on which it had been transported rather than driving it through the city center. They also likely expected him to remain sober while operating the 36-ton armored combat vehicle. To make matters worse, the local media reported that there was no insurance policy on the tank. The bulletproof joyride could cost the driver two years behind bars for driving under the influence and up to eight years for creating a dangerous situation, although there are no reports of anything being destroyed or ran over during the escapade. On Twitter, a number of people commented that the incident had a striking similarity to the newer installments of the popular game Grand Theft Auto, only with a distinctively Polish twist. While the idea of an actual Russian tank attack in our day and age would seem laughable the most, that certainly isn't the point of view of the current government in Warsaw. On Thursday, Polish President Andrzej Duda cited a litany of historical grievances against Russia while signing a massive new defense deal with the U.S. And I apologize if that one's a little wonky. It obviously is like a Polish story. I think it was translated, and not all of it was translated great, so I had to make up a couple of uh, sentences that fit and made sense. So but we're going to move on to our next story, which is from MysteriousUniverse.org, written by Brent Tingley. Missing helicopter found crashed on UFO hotspot Catalina Island. Strange coincidences surrounding recent To the Stars Academy, TTSA, and Navy disclosures keep adding up. Although coincidences are often that, a remarkable occurrence of events without any casual connection, or at least any obvious connection. For those of us who have been watching the long-awaited History Channel and TTSA series Unidentified, Inside America's UFO Investigation, know that the show have mainly rehashed and repackaged the same accounts that have been in circulation for some time. Still, it's been interesting to see these individuals on screen after reading about them endlessly for the past two years. While the show's contributions to ufology are still being debated, one of the more interesting revelations of the series has presented so far has been the focus of a pair of islands just off the west coast of California and Baja California, Guadalupe Island and Catalina Island. Guadalupe Island is home to a tiny Mexican military installation called Capamindo Militar Elsa Guadalupe, featuring a 1,200 meter long runway. Other than that, the island boasts less than 150 permanent residents, most of whom only live on the island during fishing season. 
Catalina Island, meanwhile, has for years been considered somewhat of a UFO and USO hotspot due to the numerous sightings that have occurred on or around the island throughout its history. The waters surrounding the island are also the site of unusually large craters and several gravitational and magnetic anomalies, believed to be the result of volcanic and seismic activity along the fault lines. During World War II, the U.S. Maritime Service, U.S. Coast Guard, U.S. Army Signal Corps, and the Office of Strategic Services and the U.S. Navy all either conducted training or operated facilities on the island. Today, Catalina Island boasts UFO tour companies to capitalize on this tiny island's somewhat storied history. According to the testimony of the USS Nimitz radar operator Gary Voris, the infamous Tic Tac UFOs were first detected in the vicinity of Catalina Island, and later disappeared while heading south near Guadalupe Island. The significance of these islands to the developing Navy UFO story, if any, remains unknown. Now, just two weeks after the unidentified aired episodes featuring Luis Elizondo traveling to and around the island, a strange and unsolved aircraft crash has been reported on Catalina Island. According to local news reports, a helicopter that had been missing for over 20 hours was suddenly discovered on the island by Coast Guard and Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department personnel. Footage taken from the nearby water shows the wreckage of the helicopter lying atop a hill smoldering. The pilot was found dead at the scene. How could a helicopter go missing for 20 hours on a populated island? Details are still scarce, and both the FAA and the National Transportation Safety Board are conducting an investigation. The pilot was known to take recreational flights around the island, so it's likely that this was just an unfortunate accident. Still, it's strange to see Catalina Island pop up in the news for an unexplained aircraft crash. So shortly after the island was featured by the To The Stars Academy as a UFO hotspot. Was this crash due to a mechanical failure or pilot error? And is the timing pure coincidence? Most likely, if not almost certainly, or perhaps far at the other end of the plausibility spectrum. Could the unidentified aerial phenomenon reported on the island for decades have anything to do with the crash? What about those magnetic anomalies? Let's see what the FAA and NTSB have to say. And our last story comes from Coast to Coast by the good old Tim Banal. World War II bomb explodes in German field. Residents of a German town were shaken this weekend when a bomb from World War II suddenly exploded and left behind a massive crater in a field. The bizarre event reportedly occurred at around 4 in the morning on Saturday in the community of Albach, much to the consternation of those who were asleep at the hour. A massive blast shattered their slumber and a rumble resembling earthquakes swept across the area. When authorities investigated the matter the following morning, they were amazed to find a crater measuring 30 feet in diameter and 13 feet deep had appeared in a farmer's field. Police were initially dumbfounded by the discovery, conceding that they were uncertain as to how it could have been formed. However, a subsequent examination by ordnance experts determined that the crater had almost certainly been the result of a World War II bomb that had been a dud decades ago. Why the device blew up over the weekend is uncertain, but experts say that this is likely equipped with a detonator that decomposed over time and finally triggered on Saturday morning. Explosions of the undetonated bombs were surprisingly not uncommon in Germany, as one official noted that such events statistically occur around once a year. That said, they assure the residents that the odds of someone falling victim to one of the blasts was less likely than being struck by a lightning bolt. And there you go, three more headlines for this week's episode. We're going to be back very quickly, very shortly, with some listener stories. And we're here for the final segment of the show 
We have... That was my foot snapping, by the way, if anyone heard of that. We have two listener stories. The first one is uh, from Reddit that I asked if I could use. And I'm going to plug this real quick since I'm talking about Reddit. The show does have a subreddit, r slash STS listener stories, that you can go and join. And you can throw out your own stories there if you would like to do that. But this one is by a user named Jendo Boy, and he's talking about some skinwalkers. Growing up, I lived in northwestern Arizona, literally about five miles south of the Navajo Reservation in Winslow. Naturally, being that close to the reservation, or the res, skinwalkers were a huge topic of conversation amongst the locals, and we all took it very seriously. Stories of personal experiences abounded. I was no different. Well, to start off my set of stories, I was about nine or so. My family had gone camping in a little spot about 50 miles south of a town called Hart Canyon, near Wiggins Crossing, if anyone is interested. We had been there all day, and I was extremely familiar with the area, and we had camped there about 20 times before. So my parents let me wander about alone in the woods. This was back in the early 90s. Anyway, I had some G.I. Joes that I had been playing with at a nearby creek, about 80 yards from our campsite. There were no other campers there with us. My mom had called me back to the camp for dinner, so I left and ate. Played around camp for a while and realized that I forgot my toys back at the creek, so I took a flashlight and headed back that way. I knew right where they had left them, so in no time I had found them and grabbed them up. As I was squatted down to grab them on the edge of the water, a sudden urgency that I had never felt before ran down my spine. I remember feeling frozen because of the fear, like the little boy on E.T. when the alien comes out of the field for the first time and he's trying to scream for his family. I looked up and pointed my flashlight to the other side of the creek, and about ten yards down the way, I saw something. At first, I thought it was a deer, but it was standing up, so I thought it may be a bear. But it was too skinny, and not enough poofy hair. It slunk behind a tree and peered out slightly at me. I seriously was too scared to move. I had just read a bit about Bigfoot for the first time, since it wasn't really popular in my area. I thought for a long time that that's what I saw. I finally had seen enough to gather my wits and scram as fast as I could back to camp. I told my parents, and they kind of dismissed it as my imagination, so I stayed close the rest of the trip. About two years later, I was at my house. I had two dogs. They were outside dogs, with their whole lives in my backyard. One night, they went psycho, barking at first at something in the alley behind my house, and then both started whimpering. I had my window open slightly and one of my dogs straight up jumped up the window, frantically chewed through the screen of the window, forced its way into the house, and would not leave the house for three days. Another time, when I was about 13, we used to play night games in town. Mostly, there would be nothing much else to do. We would walk around the neighborhood and act suspicious so the cops would come around and chase us, and we would run down alleyways and hop in random folks' backyards to hide. Now, it's extremely common to see an intoxicated Navajo or Hopi in the alley or on the street, so it was no big deal to see one in the alley behind my house that night, as we, we being the two of my friends and myself, ran from a police car hot on our tail. We saw him plain as day standing in our way. We ran around him and jumped into the nearest yard to hide. We waited for the cop to pass us and hop back out. Literally about three minutes went by. We ran back the way we came, and as we got to the point where the Native American had been, he was gone. Legit in his place was a coyote, sitting there watching us. We ran right past it, feet from it, and anyone who knows coyotes knows they will bail out way before you get close to them. This bugger held his ground and calmly sat and watched us run past him. 
we all freaked out and stayed inside for a month. My last experience was when I was about 15 or 16. My brother has a girlfriend that lived in a small community south of Winslow called Starlight Pines, about 25 mile-ish. Well, we met to go see her one day. As we drove out, about 15 miles out, we saw a Native American guy standing on the side of the road, which was quite odd because the res was north of town and it was rare to see anyone on foot south of town because it's just desert and forced for literally 80 miles. Anyway, we see this guy. He looked normal enough, flannel shirt and jeans. We got to our destination and hung out with my brother's girlfriend and her family well into the night. When we decided to head back home, hopped in his truck, a Chevy S10, and drove back the way we came. In the same spot, we saw the Native American. He was still there. I remember thinking, that dude is crazy standing out there all day and into the night. What's he doing? Right as we passed him, we hear a loud bang on the back of the truck. At first, I thought we hit an animal, but I hadn't felt anything when we'd run over. I turned around and looked at the back window. My brother started to slow down, thinking there may also be something wrong with his truck. In the brake lights, I see the guy chasing after us. We were easily going 55 to 60 at this point, and we were about to stop. This guy is in the road, feet behind us. I scream at my brother to not stop. Gun it, man, gun it. He does, and it being a Chevy S10, it had a speed governor on it at 80. For two miles, this guy kept up with us. We were seriously freaking out. I asked my brother, what if we don't make it back to town? Or what about when we have to slow down once we get close? After those two miles that stretched forever, I looked back and he was gone. We got home, booked it into our house, and told our parents. Next morning, I got up the head somewhere and looked at my brother's truck, thinking about the night before. I wondered what the loud bang was just before we started getting chased. Inspecting the truck, I found a handprint smeared in the dust about two-thirds over to the right and smeared to the right taillight. I never went there again. And the other story was sent in to me uh, via the website, sdscast.com. And this is some a couple of stories from... Uh, Vashuri, Vashuri, Louisiana, and this is Dylan. I love the podcast. I've been listening to it on my drives to work. I grew up in a small town called Vashuri in Louisiana. Hell, our only real store is the Piggly Wiggly Grocers. Celebrating the pre-Civil War, it's known for the Oak Alley Plantation, which I have worked at and experienced on and off haunting experience. I'm a skeptic, though. I want something to make me fully believe in the paranormal or anything cryptid. I have experienced haunting activity checking guests in the cottages at Oak Alley Plantation. I've been pranked by an entity trying to get me fired. I also want to let you know about the Raguro. It's similar to the myth of werewolves, but it's French origin. Cajun French used to believe that the spirit of the Raguro would swap from person to person for periods of time, and I've seen something I don't know if it was that sort of Sasquatch or some form of large undocumented creature, but I've seen it twice. To make it even crazier, there is actually a newspaper article from the 1980s that documents a man coming across a large, hairy man with a rope around its neck in the swamps of Ashiri. They call it the Giant. And that's not the first time someone has told me about the uh, Ragoru. But um, I'm, I want to do an episode on it, but I'm kind of having trouble nailing it down to a city. It just seems to be all over the place. But we might, we might be able to pull that one off. So I asked him to email me back and tell him more about his experiences at the plantation. And uh, this is what he gave me back. So, in 2012, I got a job working at Oak Alley Plantation as a gift shop employee, as a bed and breakfast check-in bag boy, where I would show them where their cottage was and provide them with a map of close restaurants and cities and how far away New Orleans or Baton Rouge is from the plantation. Now, from the start, I knew about the stories of Oak Alley. 
I am a skeptic. My grandmother saw the woman in white, an apparition of one of the plantation owner's wife, while she was getting into a bus many years ago. The bus passed in front of oak trees and she was there. The next second she was gone, or so my grandmother said. While I was working at the gift shop, I had plenty of free time and got to just experience pure teenage boredom, aka finding things to keep my attention while making minimum wage. So I would go out back behind the restaurant and take out full garbage bags to pass the time. On one occasion, I stood outside for longer than normal, smoking a cigarette to ease my teenage angst, of course. There is a restaurant attached to the gift shop, and behind there are large storages and freezers for food and drinks and such. There was a stack of 12 packs of soda standing on a pallet with some brooms propped up against it. All of a sudden, the brooms and sodas got pushed over with tremendous force six to eight feet away from the pallet. I was scared, but knew it could have just been some weird balance issue with the soda boxes. During Christmas time, I was given the responsibility to unplug the Christmas lights in the gift shop and turn off the power strips to be sure no power was getting to any decorations. For three days when I arrived, the lights were plugged in when we unlocked the doors. My manager scolded me and told me that I would be fired if it happens again. I told her, and reasoned with her, that I had not only unplugged the cables, but also switched off and unplugged the power strips. She said she would do it that night and show me how easy it is even a teenager could do it. The next morning, the lights were plugged in when arriving. The ghost was trying to get me fired by pranking me. My manager was dumbfounded. She didn't know whether to joke about it or blame me for not saying it was a ghost because she's experienced things as well. Now for the final story of this job. One day, I was showing two guests to their cottage. I unlocked the door to an overpriced wooden cottage of paranormal horrors. This was one of the furthest from the plantation, about three quarters of a mile, so it was quiet. I helped the guests with their bags, and I showed them where the switches for the lights are. As soon as I walked in, I could feel that this was different. Normally the air was hot, because it's south Louisiana, where it's usually 85 to 95 degrees for three quarters of the year with 100% humidity. The air was cold, like really cold. I couldn't say it was the AC, as it wasn't turned on. So I showed them their thermostat and hurried to turn it on to 60 to try and hide whatever presence there was. We walk into the living room, and I try to show them how the cable works since it's sort of like those fancy hotels with weird proprietary remotes. The TV won't turn on, the cable box won't turn on, and all the cables were plugged into the power strip and showing that it was getting power. I told them it must be an old TV. It was a big CRTV, so I could cover that mishap up. I shut the doors to the TV cabinet, we walked into the kitchen, and I sit them down and start showing them a map of the area and how far New Orleans was. As soon as I mention the plantation, the TV cabinet doors swing open, the TV turns on, Full volume, full blast, and the TV channel is on three. Static. Loudest thing I've ever heard from a TV. Blaring static. I rush to the power strip and unplug it. All three of us are standing there, trying to think of something to break the tense atmosphere. The front door is being slowly opened, and the screen door slams against the side of the cottage. They didn't stay the night, and checked out after six hours. They didn't even drink their genuine mint julep alcoholic beverage, at no cost. There are so many more stories, and I'm sure people like to hear them. Also, I'm a skeptic. So those are our two listener stories tonight. Uh, really good ones. Really nice, long, in-depth stories. A nice ghost story, nice skinwalker encounters. You don't get a lot of those around. But if you out there have a listener story that you would like to share about your small town or a small town that you've lived in, it could be a local haunting, a legend, whatever, um, you can share that. There are many ways to do it. Once I said, Like I said, there's the, the Reddit group now, r slash STS listener stories. You can go to sdscast.com, scroll down the bottom of the first page, there's an email form where you can send them in. 
Uh, if you want to call in via Skype and do an interview, get a hold of me on social media, and we can figure that out as well. But that is tonight's show. Episode 108 is in the bag. I would like to thank everyone out there for listening and supporting the show. Um, it has been a tremendous response, and it just keeps going, and I'm really happy with it. And I think we can keep on rolling on, onward into Season 2. I wanna, I'm going to give you guys a little sneak peek. I don't usually do this because it's a big pet peeve of mine. I don't usually announce what the next episode is going to be because I hate it when other podcasts do it, and then something happens and they can't do that, and you might get excited for it. So I try not to do that. But I've pretty much locked myself into the two-part season finale that is going to be episodes 9 and 10. And I think that's what it's going to be. The last two episodes of each season are kind of going to be a big story about one big, small town. Um, So this season finale, we are going to be talking about Freetown, Massachusetts, and the surrounding area. So that's going to be episodes 9 and episode 10. And then after that, the season will end. I might take an extra week off, and then we'll come back and we'll be into season two. Uh, Once again, I just want to plug everything I need to plug here. You can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, at STScast, on both of those platforms. You can follow the show on Instagram, at STScast.gram. Uh, visit the website sdscast.com for all the episodes, all the show notes, pictures, like I said, ways to share your story, all the other links to social media and Reddit and places to get the podcast are on there as well. If you get a chance, please rate and review this show on your podcatcher of choice, especially if it is iTunes. That's the big one, please. And, oh yeah, you can also, if you want, on the, there is a store link on the website for t-shirts and stickers and all of that fun stuff if you would like some merch from your favorite podcast. But I'll be back in a couple of weeks with more small town secrets. Remember, every town has a secret. What is yours?
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.